Welcome to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show. G'day out there, everyone in podcast land. Today we have a very exciting show. We have Margot Smith from the Combined Hunter Underwater Group. Thank you very much for joining us, Margot. How are you this evening? Uh, Good, thanks, Ian. Uh, Great to be able to talk to you on behalf of Chug. Chug is something that the whole world's got to know about because you do some really good work there. So I'm going to start off this evening by asking you for your earliest memory of your first scuba dive. Can you remember that? Uh, Yes, I remember I was uh, quite nervous. I was probably more co-opted to to head along with my um, boyfriend at the time. Um, And actually, uh, looking back now, it was actually the same time that the Fly Point Halifax Marine Reserve was actually being set up. Had it been going to that area more times over recent years, I might have noticed... um, those changes that were taking place from the early days in the marine park but I have been fortunate enough to be back in the area and and diving there for the um the last 17 years and what year do you reckon that was in thanks Ian that's showing my age uh, 1983 I think the marine park was set up beautiful the marine reserve was set up yeah what's your most favorite experience that you've had underwater there must be hundreds I reckon but can you pick maybe just one out of that there's always something special every dive you come back and there's been something that's memorable and um, stays um, in, in, in your brain and um, you know it's almost like there's a picture there. Most recently I think I was fortunate enough to be diving at uh, Fly Point in the late afternoon and we had a um, my buddy and I had a dolphin going past and it was hunting and yeah just uh, didn't seem to be too worried that we were there. Came in very close and uh, yes even though it was perhaps a five, five second interaction it felt like it was a uh, it, it took a bit longer than that. You won the lotto. We did. We did. Yeah. <laughs> oh, all I've got to say is, wow, you're so lucky. Yeah. And I, I think that's that's the thing that um, many divers um, don't uh, take the opportunity to see um, marine life for granted, that we do realise that we are fortunate to see something that's um, quite special. Um and to be able to see uh, an area of that, which is quite a big bit of our planet, um, the, the ocean, um, to be able to um, see that um, and to watch the interactions that are taking past. And I think it's a really important for us to be able to then share um, what we've seen, um, the importance of it with, uh, with the general public that might not be so um, fortunate to go there. Totally agree. Now, I hear that you've got an interest in nudibranchs. What sparked your interest in nudibranchs? Well, I think early on, um, and and many um, people will tell you this, that once you're starting um, diving for a little while and then you get interested in photography, um, there's quite a few challenges with taking photographs underwater. Uh, The advantage of nudibranchs is that they are quite slow moving and so there is an opportunity to be able to take your time to take um, photos of them, um, unlike uh, fish that it can be, you know, quite skittish underwater and don't necessarily stay still. Whereas you get that little bit more time to to take those photos of nudibranchs underwater, and then you know if you're showing your photos to somebody, they're sort of saying, well, you know, what is that? So obviously you've got to find out a little bit um, about the critters uh, so that you can share that knowledge. Um, you know, the fact that they've got uh, their breathing gills on the outside of their lungs, on the outside of their body, the fact that they, um, you know, they're poisonous for fish um, due to the toxins um, 
in their body. Uh, but uh, yeah, so many different colors. It's uh, different colors, different textures, different sizes, um, different things that they eat. That it's really a um, an interesting area to um, to start, um, you know, investigating a little bit more and to just um, you know build your knowledge base from the first couple of um, brightly colored ones you might see to looking at ones that are perhaps. Um, not quite so obvious. Well, I think some of our listeners will be actually really interested in building their knowledge base because, as you said, as a beginner, they they stop and you can have a look at them. Now, what is your favourite? Do you have a favourite type of nudibranch? Well, I think one that we've been fortunate to see quite a bit of lately in the local area is one that's called a lined nembrotha, and it's um it's got a smooth surface. It's um black and and white sort of more or less stripes. It has a distinctive um, orangey red um, naked gill so it's sort of a fluffy bit that's at the back of its body and also has ready orangey um, rhinophores uh, which are they actually use for their um, sensing in the water because they haven't got eyes um, the nudibranchs um, and they eat a what they a little um, blue almost like a um, looks like a flower a um, as as an acidian so nudibranchs live for various periods of time but these particular ones that we've been seeing have been in the it's in a similar sort of area for probably a good couple of months and we're seeing a few more we're not quite sure at the moment whether they're actually the same um, individuals or whether they might be the next generation because they too seem to do an awful lot of egg laying as well too so what's the difference between nudie branch and and a snail or a you know a sea slug a marine sea slugs are nudibranchs. How they get their name is nudibranch meaning naked branch. Their lungs are on the outside and they're quite flowery looking usually. So, um, And the fact that it isn't encapsulated, so it is on the outside of their body. So that's how they get their name, a nudibranch. They do have a shell, but that's inside their body or in some cases it's disappeared altogether as part of their adaptation and also just as part of ongoing development over time. Evolution, that was the word I was after. So the naked snails. There are some that you can see um, the semblance of a, of, a, of a snail shell on the outside, but it's, it's not something that they can actually retreat into. What is the difference between a door-rid nudibranch and an all-lid nudibranch? Did I get it right? Um, I think it's probably an Eyelid. Eyelid, that's it. Yeah, so nudibranchs, I guess, you know, I was talking a little bit earlier about them having, um, looking slightly different. So whether they're colourful or whether they've got textures on the outside of their body. So the dorids tend to be have a smoother texture or a smoother um, surface on them, whereas the eyelids have serrata, okay. so little like finger-like projections on the outside of their bodies. Ah, okay. And they can be quite uh, pretty to look at as well too. But then there are ones that have sort of got little pustules, so little lumps on them as, and as well. So, you know, there's all different surfaces on them to look at. Beautiful. The Combined Hunter Underwater Group, I think your organisation is just an amazing organisation and does such good work in the local area. When was Chug established? There was interest in Chug starting out as a, as a group probably in about 2010, uh, but the time wasn't quite right. There was a few um, other things happening at the time. Well, I had been approached to see whether it was going to be feasible, you know, who might be interested in, in setting it up. So it was something that I thought was a really important opportunity. And so I wanted to make sure that we were doing it at the right time. So 
obviously with any group, um, it, it's tricky to um, get some interest before it's actually off the ground. We also knew that there were other groups along the coast. So this surge up around Coffs Harbour, the uh, solitary un- underwater research group, there's um, Urge in Sydney or ERG, um, the underwater research group down there. There was a group at the time around Terrigal called TUG, so the Terrigal Underwater Group, some on the south coast as well too. So, you know, we're trying to keep in keep in line with the the name but I, I, I was thinking at the time you know the hunter underwater group wouldn't really take off um you know having a group called hug i might not get the right um right group of people actually interested and um yeah so we went for for chug because we were actually filling in a gap between the um the great lakes underwater group that was based up around uh, foster at the time and tug down at terrigal so we're filling that gap between the great lakes area and then also down to to the central coast uh, knowing that we're also trying to you know cover a number of areas so knowing that there's big diving group um up around the bay um there's also swansea as well too um a few people around the sort of northern areas of the central coast um and wanting to make it feel as though that you know that all those groups were included and and we're actually straddling to um marine bioregions as well too so we were covering the manning uh, bioregion and also the hawkesbury as well too because um the um hunter river is the division that's been put in there the border between those two marine bioregions i think a bioregion is um just a region with a lot of biodiversity. Would that be correct? Yeah. So I guess um, you know the the further apart each of these bioregions are, that you're going to have more differences with what the actual biodiversity is within those areas. Okay. It's the same as what um, happens on land. There's different um, region bioregions. So uh, I guess uh, locally we have the um, we're part of the uh, Greater Sydney um, bioregion. Uh, for the terrestrial side of things, uh, that goes pretty much from um, the Hunter River um, down to just north of um, Nowra and then out to the Blue Mountains. And so there's similar things happening off the coast as well too. So, you know, you have um, distinct plants, algae in in the case of the marine bioregion. Um, you know, you might have some fish that are endemic to particular areas. Beautiful. So I guess within the, the central coast of New South Wales, we have the Port Jackson sharks, the seahorses as well too. Yeah, they're beautiful. The soft corals, Dendronephora australis, that, um, the cauliflower corals that uh, there's a lot of research being done on at the moment in the uh, Port Stephens area. There are the odd sightings around the um the Sydney area as well too. And the group, is it an independent group? Yes, we're a um, not-for-profit community group. Yes, so we've been incorporated since 2012. So we had our 10th anniversary last year, which is um, you know something to be fairly proud of, I think, for a, um, a small group that's probably never more than about 20 um, members all up. And yeah, I mean, our main remit is about um, raising awareness of our coast and marine environment and increasing understanding and involvement in the underwater world and you know working with other groups as well too. So, you know, not necessarily reinventing the wheel, but value-adding to um other community works that are happening in the area or and assisting scientists as well too where where we can beautiful now i'd like to get on to the um the sea slug census which is really the um the nudibranch census would I be correct in saying that? Yeah, great alliteration, isn't it? And especially we've <laughs> we've just held our spring sea slug census too. So um, last actually last weekend. So um, it's uh, the first weekend in September. I think it's about our thirty third um, census. So they started back in um, two thousand and thirteen. I think it was in December. So we were um, talking. A group of people were talking after a dive one day. Actually, it was in 
uh, November and saying how we thought that, you know, just observ observationally that the sea slugs numbers and uh, seemed to be quite um, high and whether we thought that was something that was actually could be looked at from a scientific uh, viewpoint, you know, how, how would we go about that? The uh, discussion with some some uh, divers that were based at Southern Cross University and also some people that were involved with the um, Port Stevens Great Lakes Marine Park. How would we go about that? How would we get people involved? How are we going to look at um, what the records were, what people um, found? So I guess it was fine-tuned. It has been fine-tuned over time. Originally, it was only for 24 hours. That has been increased so that locally we tend to run it here for 48 hours. But um, some of the other areas that have taken on board the sea slug census to um, be able to run it in their area might run it over 10 days so that they get they can straddle two weekends. Over the years, has there been a difference recorded? There's definitely um, seasonal variations, which would make sense uh, because of the different water temperatures between our sort of um, winter ones that we were uh, running at one stage in June. So, you know, the water temperature is a lot colder then. There's a lot less um, nudibranchs around. Uh, we were also finding that uh, we weren't getting as many people that were willing to come along and participate at that time of year because obviously it's a bit colder. Yes, we do notice variations, um, but with the um, data that uh, the technical people um, that are keep, keeping an eye on the records that we're finding from each of the census are finding, you know, we're getting a lot of um, repeat um, participants as they um, participate more. They're obviously um, building their skills as well so that they might be able to find different species that they wouldn't beforehand. Then it also does just depend on the um, the conditions at a particular time too. So if we've had rain events or if we've had really big um, seas that um, that might actually impact the number of um, species that are found. Um, and then obviously, you know, how, how many people have actually seen those species as well too. So those line nembrothus that I was talking about um, earlier on as to one of the favourite um, nudibranchs, uh, the fact that they tend to stay in the same area, they are quite um, vibrant and visible that it is um, an easy one for people to see so that I would anticipate that most of the people that dived at that particular dive site on the weekend um, will have observed that particular species. Beautiful. What I'm sort of thinking, is there a nudibranch capital dive site? Like, can we say that there's more species of nudibranchs at one particular spot than other particular spots? I think that's what, um, you know, we were hoping to find at the, um, when we when we ran the inaugural census. And if we compare that site to, we ran one two weeks later down at, uh, at Swansea Channel, there's so many variables, I think, that are involved in all the um, census. Um, the more um, tidal changes that you run the census for, the more chance that you're going to have species moving in and or moving out. It, I guess it is a tricky one. Uh, we'd like to say I think that we're a hotspot because we've been running um, so many um, census here for that period of time that we've got a fantastic um, array of data. But there are definitely other hotspots in the world. Some tropical sites are quite good as well too, but I think the, um, the Port Stephens one for the number of years at the census has been run would have to show that we're a pretty good spot for being able to go there and um, find um, reasonable numbers of nudibranchs on a single dive, um, which I think, and, and to be able to find them relatively easily is uh, something that does uh, does work in our favour. On the weekend, how many nudibranchs did you find? Uh, my dive buddy and I, uh, we've 
found about 35. Oh, yeah. As well as doing the um, the underwater um, nudibranchs, we were also headed out, out to the rock platforms at uh, low tide and having a look in the rock pools there as well too. So um, there'd been big seas uh, the 24 hours before the, the weekend, so potentially that could have impacted the number of nudibranchs that we did find uh, within those rock pools and especially things like the sea hares as well too. They're another um, relative of the um, of the sea slugs and fit within the the, um, the remit for what we are able to record uh, and document over the, the weekend. Beautiful. They must be fairly hardy if they're living in the um, in the rock pools. Would that would that be a fair statement? Yeah. Look, I think um, a lot of the time you, you that's why you're waiting and doing it on the on the low tide. There is that um, you're still looking at um, areas where the water is maintained throughout the the lowest uh, area of the tide, but you're also wanting somewhere that it's still getting fresh water as well too. Um, but overall, they tend to, you know, be a little bit cryptic a lot of the time. They might be hiding underneath rocks, you know, especially once those, um, those, those waves are coming through too so that they can obviously um, survival of the fittest out there. And if you haven't got an um, exoskeleton, uh, you haven't really got a great deal to protect yourself from, um, you know, getting back. You know, you might not get eaten, but you still got the potential to get, um, you know, bashed against the rocks, that sort of thing. Yeah, and that ain't fun. No, no not at all. With the, the data that you're collecting, do you share it with other groups to see if the range or, or the extension of the nudibranchs are like if they're going, you know, north or they're going? Yeah, so um, after each um, census, so what's happening now is that we're making – the people that are doing the um, record um, recording out recording the data, uh, we're using iNaturalist as well too. So there is a special project within that called uh, Sea Slug Census. So there's an opportunity that people can go on there. Uh, the Chug um, website always has a full list of the albums from. Um, our local census uh, data as well too. So whether it's uh, the Port Stephens site or whether it's the um, the Swansea site, if you go onto the seaslugcensus.weebly.com, that's uh, sort of an all-encompassing overarching um, organisation for the um, all the sea slug census. So the different albums are available there. But what's happening is that um, the participants that are also uh, work in the science field are actually being able to uh, put together papers where they've, you know, looked at how many people have been involved and how many species are being found, um, you know, what some of the factors might have been in the lead up, whether it is range extension. So on the whole, uh, on the east coast of Australia, it just tends to be that um, they're finding uh, species, uh, tropical species that have um, migrated south. Now, whether that's been on the EAC or it could be, you know, I know there's one species that we get here that's called um, Godiva and that particular species is more a um, pest species in this area and whether it's actually arrived in um, shipwater ballast. Oh, wow. Uh, is is one theory, uh, but it but it's actually carnivorous um, nudibranch, and it will eat uh, a lot of our local species. So, much as it is a um, very photogenic species, it's a very destructive species. We are mindful of when we do see it. Um, thankfully, it tends to be only individuals, so it hasn't been a problem that there have been um, big numbers uh, noted during the weekend or during the census. Were you surprised to see any particular sea slugs? I think there's always surprises. Sometimes you're expecting you you're um you don't think you're finding many of your um 
you, I'll call them your usual suspects, a bit like, you know, if you're <laughs> doing a bird count, you know, you'd, you'd be looking for your magpies, you'd be looking for your um, minor birds and you'd be, you know, at the moment, especially looking for your rainbow lorikeets. But um, there's always things that are memorable from dives. But the, one of the things that a lot of people don't realise is that, um, you know, the underwater world also has its seasons as well too. And um, one species uh, that we tend to find uh, throughout the year um, some people call it the boring nudibranch, others call it the pancake nudibranch, um, but it's uh, it's uh, Apelodorus varia. I think it might have had a name change, um, but it's sort of mainly browns and um, brown, very very nondescript, but the patterning can change over time. It's, it's sort of got browns and it's got a purple um, gill nudibranch, and um, it uh, never seems to be around too much in the in the spring census. I'll, you know, we'll probably go for a dive in a couple of weeks and we'll find it there and um, think, oh, how did we miss it? But um, yeah, it, it's one that um, was missing in action for for me personally this weekend. I oh, might have been hiding under a rock. Yeah, if I think about it, I hadn't seen it in the couple of weeks leading up to um, the census as well too. And um, part of that sort of, I guess, growth and change of seasons underwater is that we get a um, a lot of a, a very pink, uh, fluffy weed uh, that grows um, to, towards the end of um, winter into spring. One of the things that eats that is um, our sea hares. They're beautiful, the sea hares, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Um, they... Um, they weren't really evident when I was uh, looking for them this weekend, but we have quite a few different species of sea hares. Um, why they they called a sea hare? Um, the genus of the majority of them is called a plesia. And um, the sea hares, um, these ones are, can be quite big. Uh, they've got a mottled colouring on them. Oh, wow. They can grow to the size of a, a volleyball. They're voracious eaters, and I think that's how they got their name. It's a bit similar to, you know, if you've seen rabbits in the wild and they might be a big um, group of them and then they just eat everything in sight or like locusts going through that. These um, species tend to constantly eat, end up in a bit of a conga line as well too. They um, have an interesting... Um, egg mass, which tends to look a little bit like uh, rings of spaghetti as well too. Oh, do they really? Oh, I think I've seen them. What do um the, the nudibranch eggs look like? They can be quite varied and I'm not um, an expert on being able to look at one nudibranch eggs and being able to just work out that that's, uh, you know, that's an X <laughs> or that's a Y or, you know, particular species. Um, generally, I would think of them, some of them as like um, narrow pasture in balls. Okay. Probably the size of a five cent piece, um, maybe a bit less. And then might be another one that sort of looks more um, similar sort of pattern, but quite um more white and you know looks like it's got little dots in it as well too but there are actually nudibranchs that eat the egg mass of other nudibranchs as well too so it's a it's a you know tough tough old world down there and um you know they do have particular um uh, niches that they fill within the uh the marine environment that's fascinating i never knew that i'd like to move on to another topic that chugs up to as well and that's the underwater cleanup australia tell us a little bit about that so tangara blue was set up in western australia i think it's 20 years ago now and part of their remit was not about not just doing cleanups for cleanup's sake, but being able to collect data from that and to be able to utilise that to actually um, work for change within the um, the shoreline. So that um, is now um, Australia-wide and, and further afield. 
and um, they have what's called the Australian Marine Debris Database. And within that, there's an opportunity for people to upload their data and to be able to go back and use that data um, to be able to um, possibly affect change or to actually have that um, information there to be able to say, hey, look, there's lots of plastic bags or there's lots of straws in this area, obviously pre plastic bags and straws they've done some great work with the um, different coalitions to be able to reduce plastic and uh, if we haven't got all that information it's very hard to be able to see if um, you know if if there is change underway and I think that's been one of the um, positives that having that opportunity when when the container deposit schemes have come into into fruition in various states that for the groups that are going back and doing um, the same site on numerous occasions to be able to say, well, hey, at this particular date when the container deposit scheme came in, since then we've had a lot less plastic water bottles and uh, on site and we've had a lot less um you know, aluminium cans and, you know, I think we're even finding that underwater now too when we're getting involved in our cleanups that we're not finding um, quite the same number of um, drink containers uh, because they're actually going, um, people are actually taking them back for the recycling. But we're still finding lots of fishing line and lots of other bits and pieces, you know, whether it's cigarette butts that people perhaps don't even realise they're a plastic object as well too. So uh, fishing fishing line is... is um, really big issue you know it, it looks very unsightly but it's also not good then um, you know for different animals to get caught up in as well too so whether it's turtles that have been um, you know had it caught around their their fins um, or whether it's been um, you know birds that have had it collected out you know some of our shore birds as well too so you know and it's not actually that hard to be able to take your fishing line home with you so no it isn't great to get that message out a little bit more sure would how can people get involved in um in chug and the cleanups and the and the census yeah, so anybody can do a, a cleanup so I think that's really important it doesn't have to be an organized event um you've got yeah. fantastic groups that have been you know uh, such as take three that have been trying to promote the message for years to for people to just take three bits of rubbish whenever they clean up along you know go for a walk at any time of, and you know there's other groups called two hands um uh, that have also been doing some work, I think, in, um, I think they're mainly Queensland based, but, you know, you've got two hands, you know, make use of it and just pick up those bits of rubbish as you go by. And a lot of research has shown that if an area had, does not have rubbish there, people are less likely to drop rubbish. But, you know, we all know that, um, you know, a lot of rubbish is windblown, that plastic does break up into smaller and more smaller pieces. And as it breaks up into smaller pieces, it becomes lighter as well too. So, you know, there's there's a lot of um, different ways that um, rubbish can get into the uh, marine environment. And as we know that the ocean is downhill from everywhere. So, you know, anywhere, with any catchment, it will make its way down through the waterways, through the stormwater drains to that lowest point, which is either, you know, Lake Macquarie, uh, the ocean, uh, and it is just one ocean out there it's all connected so when it goes there it's not away it's actually impacting the marine life that's there that's correct where can people get involved with the organization yeah so we do have a facebook presence so people could um, just look out for us on chug is our um, facebook.chug i think Uh, we've also got a website too so if anyone does a um a a search for combined hunter underwater group you know they might uh, just want to support the group to help us to carry out our activities Uh, we have a very um, modest uh, membership fee Uh, we know that not everybody's able to you know donate their time 
but it would be great to be able to, you know, continue our activities because anybody that belongs to a community group will tell you that, um, you know, it's not cheap. A lot of people are um, donating their time, but we do have to have insurance, uh, which is not cheap, that everybody has to have their public liability insurance and also just part of the uh, the financial returns to keep um, groups credited. And one of the things that I really enjoyed reading on your website was about your um mm-hmm. your fish surveys. Yeah, so that's another way, you know, not everyone's interested in nudibranchs, not everyone's interested in um, doing cleanups or it doesn't fit in with, you know, what they've got uh, on a particular weekend. So, you know, one way that we try and keep interest uh, throughout uh, through the winter months is to just get everybody to um, that's out and perhaps um, diving um and we usually try and hold that in July. And that is just um, taking a snapshot of what uh, fish can be seen in Swansea um, Channel on a particular tide. And uh, we're quite surprised. We thought things looked pretty good the, um, this, uh, this July. And I think we had over 80 species that were actually recorded by wow. those that participated. So, you know, I don't think people, sometimes people say, oh, there's a lot of fish down there. But, you know, when you've got people that are actually interested in seeing what those fish are uh, or what fish are actually present um, you know it, it does make a difference once you start adding it up and fish move fast and people looking one way taking a photo they might miss other species as well too so the fact that you know we were able to through the people that had participated on the day um, to be able to get that many species and including included in that was one very cold looking moorish idol that wouldn't necessarily be there but it obviously <laughs> made its way there in the um along the um the eastern australian current the eac um but it did uh it was there without all its friends but um it'll be interesting to see whether it actually manages to um winter over and uh, still continue to grow so we shall watch and see and take photos Mm, taking photos (laughs) beautiful and did we we miss anything do you think we've missed anything about chug tonight there's so much that i could share with people i think the main thing is is you know when you go out into those coastal areas when you go snorkeling when you go rock pooling when you go if you're fortunate enough to go diving you know just um to appreciate what's there realize it's a pretty tough world out there for um our marine uh, critters not many people get the um opportunity to go there and, you know, it's really important to sort of join those dots and just realise how much everything is interconnected um, underwater, the same as it is on land as well, too. And that, um, you know, when you go underwater, if there's any rubbish down there, it might be out of sight for a lot of people. But even diving on the weekend in um, nine metres of water and if, oh, probably, you know, 30 metres out from the shoreline, there was little plastic cars that had somehow got down there that I was taking a photo of and, you know, brought it back and uh, did a little story on it. But, you know, things can move. They float for a while and then they sink and then they get pushed along with the tide. So just because it's out of sight doesn't mean that it's, you know, not impacting anything. And over time that would have broken up into smaller pieces and had the potential to get into, you know, fish's guts, which um, then might end up in somebody's dinner plate. That's exactly right. Margot Smith, legend, marine protector, Thank you very much for all your information tonight. I'm sure everyone enjoyed it. Thanks very much, Anne. You've been listening to Citizen. 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 Citizen Science. Citizen Science Show.